This podcast is supported by VEPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Today, we're speaking with David Beaumont. David Beaumont is a landscape and portrait painter. He resides in Queenscliff, but, but makes frequent trips to the outback. His most recent series has been a study of William Buckley, an escaped convict who lived with Aborigines on the Ballerine Peninsula in isolation from Western civilization for some 32 years. Today, we're talking with David about art and the city. Welcome to the show, David. I'm curious, was art always your passion? No, Jess. Uh, hi, firstly. And no, no, there's not a not an artistic bone in any other of my family members and I came to art a little later in life as well. Um, uh, I actually, about 30 years ago, I had this job packing chocolates in a factory and uh, I thought it was the most wonderful job in the world because you could eat whatever you wanted on the job. You know, every pay they gave you a big bag of chocolates uh, and you'd just go to work and you'd go home and that was it. And then after a few months, I got a little bit scared about how um, everyone was just talking about buying the best and newest car and the best house and and there was just an absolute there were these sort of internal politics around who was going to run the particular chocolate machine that night and I thought wow this is scary stuff really so it wasn't for me so I just started to draw instinctively and then went back to Ballarat University and did some undergrad studies in fine art and then some years later, uh, went to the VCA, Victorian College of the Arts, and, and completed a master's. Yeah, David, you know, you started sketching. Was there anything like at school? Did you do that? Or did you just instinctively no. pick that? No, it was kind of a response to the um, uh, the regimented and rather dull working environment in a factory that, um, I, I had a good friend who nearly died from cancer at the time too. And I thought, oh, is this what it's all about? And I don't know. I just started drawing. I just started drawing and it just sort of went on from there really. And it, it gets, gets a hold of you. It gets under your skin somehow. And off you go. Oh, a, bit, a bit like town planning, Jess. But um, now, David, you, live, you now live in a quiet coastal town, Queenscliff. What were, yep. the, qual- what were the qualities of the place that attracted you? Um, uh, we had young kids and we wanted them to grow up in a smaller community, um, to be able to walk around quite safely, but there's also something quite, um, I mean, Queenscliff is essentially an island really with a small narrow, uh, road into the township. Um, it can't expand as such. There's really no more land. It's pretty well built out as it is. Um, it has uh, a lovely historical reference to fishing and tourism from the early or the mid 19th century, um, and some beautiful, beautiful architecture. So they're the kind of draw cards for the place. It's it's quite a lovely place to be. And just going back to that theme around art and the city, what are your favourite paintings of city and town life? And can you maybe talk about two or three painters and take us through their works? Yeah, uh, I just clarify, are you asking me about paintings of the city or paintings that I like that are in cities? 
<laughs> Does that make sense? Well, 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 David, this the, this is the nature of our podcast. You can choose. So. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I've had a bit of a think about this. There's um, it's very difficult to know where to stop really because there are so many artists that I uh, that I like. Um, but there's a couple that that stand out. They kind of have a reference i suppose to maybe architecture or, or some kind of social context around um, living and planning um one of them is uh francisca goya um at the prado in madrid down in the in the basement um so i think later in life goya went completely deaf and he was known as a um a society painter and i think he did some royal portraits as well but when he became deaf, he shut himself off um, from pretty much most of the world and locked himself in a, a home on the outskirts of Madrid. And there he just kept painting, but he, he started to paint what he really wanted to paint unencumbered um, because he was sort of cut off from the world. And after his death, those paintings um, sat there for quite some years. Um, and I don't quite know how they came to be in a collection of uh the Prado, but these paintings of Goya are so different from anything else that he ever made whilst he was seeking commissions and so on. And they're, they're unfettered, they're, they're dark, they're moody, they're insightful, um, and they're, they're, there's kind of a, a, a deep poignancy about these works. And they sit in the Prado and they're kind of about life. And um, I think there's there's a freedom and liberation with these works because he was unencumbered. He was no longer linked to painting uh, portraits or paintings for money. He could just paint what he liked. So there's something quite, um, there's a great level of integrity um, about these works. And they're, they're very resonant. When you go down to the, the, the lower echelons of, of the Prado and see these works, they're quite mind blowing. They're really, really quite something else. So that's, um, that's that's one artist. There's uh, another one, and is it Prado as well? I'm, I'm afraid, but uh, the Garden Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus Bosch, painted around 1490, uh, maybe 1510. So it's a very early painting on three wooden panels, and this painting is really about uh, it, it's about the hold that religion had on society at that time um, in the early Renaissance of Europe. Um, so you can, what you can see in this painting, and it's, it's really the most extraordinary painting if you jump online and have a look at it. Uh, I guess it's really about uh, heaven and hell and purgatory, really, these themes. But the, the, the imagery that, that uh, Hieronymus Bosch has conjured up in this is just so vivid you, you'd just swear he was on acid or just smoking heaps of dope or something it's just out of there and it when you look at some of the surrealists you know um nearly 200 years 300 years later you know they're sort of tapping into some of this imagery it seems like because but this is just such a painting that's just left of anything that was happening at the time it's quite an exciting and unusual unusual picture so, um, so with the surrealists, are we talking about 1910, 1920s, that sort of thing? Yeah, Dali-esque sort of era. Yeah, but you can sort of see some of these um, images from this this picture in, you know, 1490 that are being um, referenced um, 
early early 20th century works by a whole heap of those other artists. It's really <laughs> quite an extraordinary painting. But I suppose the point is it has a um, a social and cultural cultural context to it really for the time. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Art takes many forms, David, and in in cities, one of the most prominent is sculptures, um, public sculptures, and yep. that is now a very contested space um, uh, in terms of looking back over history and and what sort of sculptures are appropriate to contemporary days. Any any thoughts on that? I know it's a very big topic, but yeah, just, sure, uh, sure. if there's one one aspect of it you want to talk about. Uh if I can just clarify, when you say contested space, do you mean that the um, the price of real estate in cities is so valuable to have sculpture there? Is, is, is <laughs> no, I, no, I is mean, that what you mean? Well, okay. well, at the, at, well, at the moment, there's you know whether there's too many statues of uh, what do they call them, Jess, uh, stale white pale old white men, or something like that, or that the, the sculptures of the past don't represent those societies and therefore some of them should should be removed. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it was interesting um, being down in Hobart for Dark Mofo, the winter festival there, and uh, many of these large old bronze sculptures celebrating, you know, um, mostly men, um, from the colonial era that now we, we see these sculptures in a different light given what they may signify. Um, but at, at Dark Mofo and one park there, all can, the can sculptures you just explain, were wrapped. Uh, sorry, David. Can you just yeah. explain to our listeners outside Australia what Dark Mofo is? Oh, yes. Dark Mofo is the most wonderful winter arts festival in Hobart um, that um, is it's just a celebration of winter, the winter solstice, darkness, light, moodiness, food, art, music, people. It, it's it's just um, it's um, it, it's really quite something. Yeah. So sorry really for interrupting you. So, so no, you're talking okay. about sculptures. Yeah. So these uh, this this well established park um, right in the city of Hobart. All these old bronze sculptures of, of forefathers, if I can use that term, of, of the city, were covered in uh, cloth and uh, tied up and bound, almost Christo-like in their appearance. And that it was quite interesting to sort of see them take on almost a ghostly and shadowy form in that space. So you knew something, obviously, the sculpture was under there, but you didn't know what it was. And uh, it really... It changed um, the perception of, of those forms in that space. It could have been anything under those uh, canvases or tarps that, that were wrapped up. They were quite, um, they were quite beautiful in themselves, really. Um, and although the sculptures, when 
unadorned by the, the canvas signify colonisation and um, the demise of First Nations people and, and and so on. When they were wrapped up, it, it just changed them. It was it was quite and I, you know, some people might say, well, they were also put on there to protect those sculptures from vandals too. Well, maybe I don't know, but they they took on a different uh, different form, different meaning, if you like, and it was good. It was interesting. And so how do you feel when public sculptures, not necessarily those ones that we're just talking about, but when they're attacked or vandalised, as has recently been happening, I think, in the UK? Yeah, I'm not aware of that UK incident. And I, I sort of feel, uh, I feel two different things. I, I feel, part, part of me feels quite excited that sculptures are attacked, that they, they provoke something and prod something in someone enough to to want to um, act and maybe, you know, uh, blemish or, or damage the sculpture. There's something, and this is a personal view, there's something in me that quite likes that kind of um, rebelliousness, really. But, um, yeah, but then there's also something of me too that I think, well, the artist has made this and they've got something to say and they put it here and, and it's been vandalised. So... Uh, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. It's. I, I feel both sides of the coin here. Yeah. Um, David, there's a saying to each age, it's art. I'm not sure who said that, but it's sometimes brought <laughs> up in uh, tribunal hearings and things like that in defence of contemporary architecture. Rather, okay. You know, like um, that. And I think it was very much used in the 50s when a lot of the new uh, modern style came, came appeared and yep. there was um, a backlash against that um, yep. your thoughts about to each age it's art and particularly in sort of a context of if you can the our cities in relation to our cities well well in well maybe in regards to art I mean the the yep. idea that you know, the art or the architecture or even the planning represents its time. Yeah, sure. Um, I've thought a little bit about this question. I think, um, you know, in hindsight, we can we can uh, track the evolution and history of art and uh, architecture, really. And uh, and I guess it. For architecture, I'd imagine it relates to technology and materiality and how things change and shift. So brutalism of the 50s, for example, those concrete sort of structures that, that I think are quite wonderful um, but were probably hated at the time. Um, the same, you know, you look at Victorian architecture, then, you know, Edwardian and Federation, and each time these things kind of shift also represent a... A different way of being socially living too I think it, you know the, the higher ceilings the lower ceilings the smaller rooms the rooms broadening out the way the inhabitants of those households start to congregate or don't congregate um, in, in those things also uh, have a social context to them and I guess art's probably the same really um, I think uh, I think um, in some respects, it just is what it is. Like I, I think, and I was like, I'm a big uh, fan of Gaudi's architecture and, you know, uh, 
1920, I think maybe in, in Barcelona. And how radical was his architecture for that period in history? That's just pretty out there sort of stuff, really. I don't know how the heck he got the planning permits through to do what he did. But thankfully <laughs> he did because they are just absolutely sensational pieces of, of work. You know, Sagrada Familia, the Casa Batia. You know, park well, you well, what about they're, what, they're what about just, the um, what about the Gaudis of today, David? Should they have our you know should should we be more open to the potential for Gaudis amongst us? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. My goodness me, I you know I don't know how this um. It's it's complex. It's complex with with public spaces and housing and commercial constraints. Um, how you bring this together? Because the the sense, I mean, they're still working on the Sagrada for me, for goodness sakes. You know, over a hundred years later, um, how how does creativity? I mean, I think what Gaudi was making, I guess, I, I just see it as pure creativity and and the quality of the the work. It's it's just mind blowing. Whereas I think there's just so many constraints now um, involved in in maybe architecture. You know, I, I think it's it's difficult. So where if someone, you know, I I think the the architects must be a very small handful that just have carte blanche to do whatever they like um, within a brief, or you know, without a brief, really. They just these things cost money, and someone's got to pay for it. And I don't quite know how it all works but um yeah i do lament uh, i do lament sort of this this there's something stifling maybe that's going on i don't know i don't know it's it's complex it's complex and and you know developers have a have a valid you know a key role here with um providing housing for example but then you look at some pockets of of, of melbourne where the properties that are being developed are just so close together and uh, so intense. And it's, it's reflective also of the digital age in which we live, whereas people, you know, no longer have the backyard to, to play in, but they're in there inside on the computers or their Netflix or what have you. So it's kind of mirroring or reflecting or a simpatico, if you like, between the way um, Western culture particularly is heading uh, and, you know, for those sorts of houses. So, I mean, they're obviously more an affordable sort of bracket, but I'm concerned what that might do for people, how they do or don't relate to one another. Or I had a family member living in St Kilda Road in a, a very expensive sort of high-rise uh, development, and you, you take the lift up and you walk down the corridor and open the front door and you close the door behind you and that's it. You're completely isolated. And I get that it's private and it's silent and all the rest of it, but you don't sort of hang over the fence and talk to your neighbour either. I don't know. These things do have an effect, I think, on the way society functions or, or yeah, I'm not sure. Not sure. David, in terms of aesthetic and place, what type of city forms excite you and are there particular areas that make you feel more comfortable as an artist? Um, or, or, David, do you like to be uncomfortable? I mean, Tell our listeners, what, what 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 do you look for, as Jess said? You know, what sort of places do you like? Comfortable, uncomfortable, 
neutral yeah, spaces. Yeah, I like everything. Really, I do. I like. I like everything. I spend quite a bit of time in St Kilda um, when I'm not in Queenscliff, and uh, I, I really, really like St Kilda. It's, I, it's I, again for our, again for hey? our listeners outside of um, Melbourne. Can you describe St Kilda? Oh, St Kilda's just this wonderful. Uh, Bayside suburb that's it's, it's eclectic, uh, very bohemian. It's it's edgy and dark. It has a very mixed uh, demographic about it. Um, whereas if you know a kilometre sort of down the road, you may have Middle Park or Albert Park or South Melbourne, very middle middle class, uh, lovely, beautiful architecture, beautiful suburbs. But St Kilda just is this wonderful melting pot of unpredictability, um, and I enjoy that very much. You never know what you're going to come up against, um, and that that's that's quite joyful. And at the same time, you know those old big cities of the world, say London's and Paris, and uh, you know in Spain, of course, Italy. Um, these places that have had centuries of evolution in their development that are etched, and you know. Um, in the north of England, you, you go into some of these old 15th century pubs where you can barely stand up and over the, the doorstep, the stone, which is worn by literally hundreds and hundreds of years, there's something really quite lovely and familiar about that. They, they tell the story, they're very human, um, and you feel like you're part of some baton that's being passed by being there and participating or having a meal or a drink or moving through these spaces. Um, yeah, I, don't, I think the spaces that I'm drawn to are those that have some sort of character. What I'm not drawn to is sterility, really. And I suppose if you're talking about um, planning, I think, I don't know, I'm a painter, I'm not a planner, but I think the challenge for planners must be surely to how do you make something work? You know, how do you, how do you, what is it that, that's about um, engagement for humans in a space? Um, what resonates for them? Do they feel safe to congregate there? Or do they want to feel unsafe in that space, as you suggested earlier? Uh, I, th I think it's a very difficult and tricky job. Europe, of course, has had centuries of ironing these problems out. Um, but mind you, they still have issues as, as you know, things get sort of pushed pushed and pushed out outwards but um yeah i don't know i know i think the planning can also be um, can it can it be um constricting in some ways because everything is thought through too much there's kind of no um well, well, well david uh, that's uh, you touched on questions of authenticity i think those the places yeah. you like, you're attracted to, have, and I think we all have, as you alluded to, an innate feeling of, of that. But when you create new cities, new town centres, uh, you, you know, new community places, you haven't got that uh, historical place, yeah. uh, as you say, that's evolved. So, and there, there is a, I, I don't know about what you think about this, Jess, and maybe we're being a bit un. I'm being unkind, but there is a degree of sameness in the new places being created. Jess, I know you've worked on a lot of those big projects. Am I being unfair about that? 
No, I don't think that's an unfair comment to make, but I think in a way the the passage of time also creates that uncomfortableness. I think that's where you do start to get a little bit more of that um, grit and interesting things come out of that grit. I don't, I don't think it's possible to create that all at once. That's my view. I mean, David, having lived in gritty places, I, I've quite enjoyed them when I was younger, but now I'm just getting old. I don't, I don't enjoy them anywhere near as much. Give me, give me nice, pleasant, aesthetic streetscapes uh, with trees and yeah. I think I think it depends on your definition of grit, though, as well. Why do you Why do you want um, Why do you want pleasant aesthetics now? Why is that shifting? Uh, probably because uh, when you're young, I think uh, you've got a different outlook. Um, you, you, you know, your perceptions and everything are completely different. You, you know, you are uh, much more. You accept risk. You you okay. you've got a certain a certain naivety. Um, you've you've got you know you've left the home and you want to embrace the world and you want to be an adult and then i think as you go through your different stages um you tend maybe to think uh, i don't really want graffiti over every blooming plain service <laughs> i don't want rubbish i don't want people begging for money i you know i'm it, it, sorry jess is that too am i sounding too bourgeois Never. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I can see you living in St Kilda, Pete. Oh, uh, look, I, 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 I would have been comfortable there once, but um, it, it's, it's, it's that question. Now, David, back to this. I'm going to put you under the spotlight a bit more than here. Art is a <laughs> art is a political force in city spaces. Is this too much to ask? I mean, you know, I mean, some people associate the art art or art world with you know uh, introducing political change or encouraging social reforms and things is that and is that too much to ask or or should art be just about art i think you've answered your question really art should just be about art and, and whatever that um format or notion or idea is it should be what it is without any constraint whether that be uh political uh whether it be social comment whether it just be about beauty um i don't think there should be constraints about what art should or shouldn't be really thanks for the support from ratio consultants an independent voice and trusted partner in planning urban design transport and waste management Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details. And David, you're a landscape painter primarily. Wondering, have you ever been interested in urban spaces and painting those spaces? And if so, what type of settings? No. <laughs> it's a short answer. Um, no. So uh, what, what, uh, what kind I've of landscapes? Series, uh, I've done a series of uh charcoal drawings on some of the inhabitants of inhabitants of St Kilda as they walk around um but not so much the the architecture I'm, I'm just not 
I'm just not drawn to that in any way, shape or form. Um, it's people that interest me, um, hence my interest in portraiture as well, um, but also the Australian landscape um, as well. well. We'll come to that shortly, but David, the luminosity of place, of light, shadow and colour, can you talk to these qualities for urban spaces? or, or So when, when you're walking around a, a city, uh, do these things come into play? I mean, uh, how you observe observe the the city, or are you like the rest of us, just stumbling around your business about your business? Oh no, 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 no! You've always. Uh, oh, I think that's one of the the wonderful things about uh, cities and the energy that they can can provide is the the chiaroscuro, the light and shade uh, in the cities. You know, you go to Fed Square or you're down to Grave Street, you know, intimacy and lots of people and small shops and then it opens up to Fed Square or, or one of the larger boulevards of, of Melbourne, for example. And it, it's no different really, well, for me, in, in a passage of a painting really, uh, even a landscape painting, you know, you're kind of looking for um, these, these spaces and surfaces that stimulate your eye and open up and close in you might want to go up close or step back or you know just have a look at the color or what's going on so all of these things that occur in a, in a picture i think also occur in a slightly different format albeit not dissimilar um in cities so just the rich tapestry of um sensory material that's available to you in the cities that that i i find um i i, I love queenscliff um but I find if I'm here for about mm, a week to 10 days, I, I need to go to the city. And it's the city might just be for me sitting in St Kilda or just walking around and wandering around the city. There's an energy that, that somehow feeds my practice just from that. Yeah. So it's, uh, there's, a, there's a simpatico between um, the textures of a city and, you know, what an artist might be looking to try and create on the surface of a, of a canvas too. Does that make sense? Of course. Or, or, am, I, or am I crapping on again? <laughs> no, <laughs> no we, we, David, it, I'm the one who normally craps on, so it, it's good to have. Uh, it's a welcome change. It, 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 <laughs> that's no. someone else that craps on. No, no, no. no. It, it's, you know, what, 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 what you say is completely, will, will resonate with a lot of our listeners. So um, I, I'm good with that, Jess. Now, David, um, art as a general topic, I think, and a lot of people say this, can be quite intimidating. What suggestions would you have for people who want to engage with the art world? Well, I have no idea, really. <laughs> look, um, Just get out there uh, and look and, and see all the galleries that you can see and engage with it? Yeah, I think so. Like, I think... Um... Well, how, how do you how do you develop an appreciation for art then? Is is it simply about being exposed to it? Do you think? Um, these things, these questions feel feel quite quite complex, really. And um, <laughs> we don't... got you, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think um, like I. Um, what am I going to say here? I'm going to say something about, and this is my view, that where 
on one level, you know, I think it's uh, important for some artists who want to have say something through their through their work. Whereas I'm kind of far more interested in really not saying much about the work. Um, you look at the work. Does it do something for you? Does it not do anything for you? Either way is fine. Then you move on and have a look at something else. And then after a while, when you're starting to look at work, don't even look at the label or anything, but you, you, you know, you just look at it. You look at the form, you look at the color, you look at the figures or you look at the length. Does it speak to you? I think it, and I suppose it's that, um, it's, it's a kind of uh, rather nebulous factor that it's, very hard to put your finger on. I'd probably say the same about a building, a piece of architecture really. There's something about this building that feels right. I feel good when I'm in this space, but I don't know why. And there's something about a painting that when I look at it, uh, I don't want to know what the artist's intent is initially. I don't want to read about it. I don't want to hear about it. I just want to sit in front of this picture um, because it churns something up in me or I try and avoid the words like or not like. Um, you know, I, I, it's, it's probably more helpful to put some meat on the bones around that. But it, it, does it resonate with you? If so, why? Or does it not resonate? You know, try and find the words around that. And that's probably just a, a really straightforward way um, of going about um, looking at art, really. And uh, also, I think there's, yeah, sorry, Pete. Go. Sorry, terrific. Sorry, David. No, I was just going to say, um, you know, often artists are never short of words, and I haven't shut up really during this, so <laughs> I'm a total hypocrite. But I'm, I'm not, I'm not, uh, like lots of artists um, are able to speak at great length about their painting. And when you hear them speak, you think, wow, this must be something incredible. And you see the painting and it's just not, I'm just not, the words aren't matching what I'm looking at, really. And I guess I figure painting is a visual medium. So you use your eyes initially and, you know, you, what it does, does it tingle your senses? Does it, does it evoke something? Uh, and that, for me, I guess, should be first and foremost what art is about, really. And, and architecture too, you know. I think, you know, there's some just fantastic architecture around and how it relates to the other spaces and, and architecture and how it's been thought through, but it hasn't been overthought. And, you know, the same principles apply in a painting. You know, you you make a painting and you, you get down in a rabbit hole in your head and you, you tighten up and, you know, these are all these sort of tensions around um, how you make the picture, how you must go about designing a building or planning a space um, where your initial idea and your enthusiasm, and then you start to think it through more and then you get stuck and bogged and, you know, it's, you're trying to please everyone or I don't know, these things, again, are very complex. I think terrific answer, David. And <clears throat> talking about staying fresh uh, and with your art um, and can cities stay fresh? Um, or should they not want to be fresh? Uh, is there something about ageing scars and character marks uh, thoughts? And it sort of touches on a bit of what you said, but, to, you know, that 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 idea that she's have to be fresh all the time. Well, I, you know, 
I think there's this uh, this tension that plays itself out really with say planners and local government and state and federal governments around cities and, and spaces around um, developing them. Like I think you know after COVID with Melbourne, for example, you know there's a there's a, a big push from the city of Melbourne to bring people back in and relive in the city and uh, you know it, it's it's difficult to sometimes contrive something like that because you've also got commercial constraints or issues at stake here. You know, you've got all these wonderful businesses, hospitality, food, restaurants, cafes, nightclubs, bars, trying galleries and so on, trying retail, trying to bring people in so they can continue to earn, earn their living but also contribute something socially and culturally to a city uh, but they are a business after all at the end of the day too. Um, and so where does, where does, can you contrive rejuvenation? It's a bit like artists in some respects become the, the precursor to the next property boom in a, in a sense because artists notoriously impoverished and so seek out the cheaper real estate in which to live and work. Um, and then so you get groups of creative young people living in these areas. So then you get a music scene, a cafe scene, and then the yuppies sort of get onto it and they start to buy the houses in the area and then developers sort of come into it and then the artists can no longer afford to be there. And that, that dynamic is replicated dozens and dozens and dozens of times all around the world, you know, um, as artists just get pushed getting out further and further and further. And, um, yeah, and I don't know what you do about it. It just is what it is, I guess. But yeah, they're often the litmus test for some something that's that's gonna gonna happen. The, the, an energy that's created in in those outer suburbs where real estate was accessible, but no longer. So then they move on. David, prior to COVID lockdowns, you were invited to the Australian Embassy in Paris to talk to your William Buckley series. Can you just give a brief background on the character and what you sought to invoke? Uh, yeah, sure. I was actually invited to exhibit the William Buckley series of paintings at the embassy in 2020, October of 2020. And, um, so, uh, just a little bit about William Buckley. He was, uh, born in Macclesfield in Cheshire, Northern England and served as a foot soldier in the King's Regiment and fought in the Napoleonic Wars. When he came back to England, he was uh, charged and sentenced to death for stealing a bolt of linen because he was a soldier that was uh, uh, commuted to transportation. So in 1803, he and a boatload of other criminals were sent to establish a, a, a settlement in um, Port Phillip Bay. And uh, the first place the boat stopped off was at Sullivan's Bay, which is near present-day Sorrento. And uh, I think the day after Boxing Day in 1803, Buckley and three others, one was shot. So it was Buckley and two others escaped. Um, they were supposedly heading towards Sydney, but got horribly lost, although there's some conjecture now as to whether they knew they were exactly where they were going. But they ended up uh, walking around Port Phillip Bay and getting to, in fact, uh, Queenscliff, Swan Island, um, Point Lonsdale, 
uh, in those areas that I live. And they're on, in fact, in Swan Island. And the, the two um, other guys that Buckley was with decided, look, they hadn't had fresh water for five days. They didn't know what they could eat. Um, they were in a pretty bad state, as was Buckley. He was in a terrible state of health. Um, they decided to go back. But Buckley refused to uh, surrender his freedom. It's, it's just a mild story. So Buckley continued. He met a, an Aboriginal family um, in Point Lonsdale who gave him some gum from, the, from a tree and nurtured him back to health. And he lived at what's known as Buckley's Cave in Point Lonsdale. We don't know for how long. But then continued further down the coast, uh, Barwon Heads, across the river there. Uh, in fact, lived with the Watharong people for 32 years. Um, and he was believed by them to have been um, uh, a spirit of one of their um, Aboriginal men that had been slain in battle and had come back because Buckley had found his spear buried in his grave and picked that up. So Buckley, during this 32-year period, of course, had forgotten how to speak English, and uh, he just uh, spoke the native tongue of the Watharong and was pretty much um, engaged in, uh, with their culture and society, although there were some ceremonies he was not privy to, um, but he was, he was loved by the tribes and uh, he was very close to the tribes and his friends. And um, the Wathorong clans, I think there are 24, maybe 25 clans, so they go all the way down towards the Otways uh, inland from there, and then also the other side, uh, Werribee, um, Queenscliff side of Werribee River, and then also down to Bunnyong and Ballarat Way as well. So it's quite an area um, that they covered. Um, and uh, in 1835, uh, John Batman had an encampment at Indented Head. And uh, am I rabbiting on too much about the no, story? No, 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 <laughs> no David, it, it's very interesting, but. One thing the listeners should know is that the settlement that the the British had, they left in 1803. So he was that the whites left the whole area for 30 plus years. That that's right, isn't it? So he was very that's, isolated. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Buckley, he was he was the only uh, uh, white person. Uh, I believe there may have been some whalers down Portland Way, but he didn't have any contact with those. Uh, but Buckley was, uh, and this is why it's it's a contentious, but it's a very important story and a very significant um, story to the history of Victoria, if you like. And um, Buckley probably is one of the very few people that had direct and first-hand insights to Indigenous culture. Um, and he wrote a book with uh, John Morgan, and look, I, I could wrap it on for hours about this story, but look, to cut a long story short, well, Buckley well, presented himself to John Batman's encampment at Indented Head in 1835. There was uh, a lot of people coming up from Launceston to Cario Bay, um, and they were looking for a settlement, and then they found the, the, the freshwater supply at the Yarra River, and hence the city of Melbourne was established then. And so Buckley for a period of... Oh, sorry, you go. So can you describe some of your, the painting series that you did to, uh, yeah, sure. did maybe maybe some of the paintings? Uh, yeah, I'm in the studio now, 
they're tucked up in the corner there, all wrapped up, so they're safe and secure. The the body of work I painted on William Buckley was not so much um, a body of work about, oh, here's William Buckley spearing for eels uh, in the Barwon River. Um, there are a couple of historical references, but I was far more interested in the relationship Buckley had with the Watheron people, the friends he had, uh, the wives that he had. Um, he had at least one, maybe two children. Um, and talking with the Watherong about this, um, Buckley is a contentious figure for many Watherong people. Um, he's, he's seen as a, a, a traitor, uh, someone that turned on them. But uh, from the research, and I've, I've had access to really uh, all the archival stuff at the State Library and, and elsewhere, um, Buckley was, was seriously torn. He, when he presented himself at John Batman's encampment in 1835, um, he wanted to protect the encampment because uh, some of the tribes were, were going to attack and steal tomahawks and canvas and food and so on. Um, but Buckley also wanted to protect and preserve his Aboriginal friends. And in some ways, uh, one way of looking at Buckley, and this was the role he had for a couple of years, and what a very difficult role he was placed in uh, as some kind of mediator between the First Nations people and this horde of uh, newcomers and, and settlers coming up from Tasmania, particularly, and, and in from the UK. Uh, so trying to, to make the peace, which, of course, was an absolutely impossible task. Um, and so he, he despaired and, and ended up moving to Hobart. Um, and lived there. He he married there. And um, the the strange the strange thing was, you know, Buckley lived with the Watherong for thirty two years, completely unharmed, and was very healthy, um, and had a happy happy existence by and large. Um, went to Hobart and and just struggled for money, and 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 just really didn't have much of a life. But he fell out of the back of a, a horse and gig and hit his head and he died shortly after that. So after all those years of living in the wild, uh, down here in the Ballerine and further down the coast and surviving, uh, to fall out of a, a gig and hit his head like it's it's a bit like Keith Richards with all the all the gear that he's used over the years and then a coconut fell from a tree and hit him on the head and nearly killed him. It's quite a bizarre sort of scenario, really. But anyway, that, that David, but it, yeah. We're getting to the end of the <clears throat> interview, sadly. But before we, we we come to the last part, you do go off in the outback sometimes and do your landscape paintings. Yes. You, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about those expeditions in, in a minute or so? Yes, I'm sorry to wrap it on about Buckley. <laughs> um, uh, yes, yes. Well, I followed Buckley's footsteps, for example. I, I walked around Port Phillip Bay um, with no with ID. No money. No, no ID, no money, no nothing, just a, um, a sleeping bag and a, uh, no mash um, and just relying on a sketchbook. I had a sketchbook, so just relying on the kindness of people as Buckley relied on the kindness of the Watherong to sustain him. Um, uh, yeah, so from Sullivan's Bay all around to Buckley's Cave I walked. So it took me six days. Um, so that was quite an adventure. Um 10 days in the Flinders Ranges, um, just riding an old drag star in a safari suit, eating goji berries, 
Um, and that was, I got quite dizzy and woozy by the end of that. Um, the Lara Pinta trail for five days, just eating miso soup. And something happens when you take yourself outside these comfort zones where, you know, food is easy and come by and everything's warm and comfortable. You start to see things sharper and the landscape really does open up to you. So, yeah, there's some of the things I've done. <laughs> okay, Jess, we should, you know, something we should do this Sort of, yeah, um, I'm feeling inspired. Well, I, <laughs> I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm up to it, Jess. But anyway, I, I, oh, I, you, I, you wouldn't even go to St Kilda for an afternoon, mate. <laughs> All right, uh, now Jess, over to you. Yeah, David, what words do you live by? Do you have a phrase or a saying? Uh no, not really. No, no, but, um there was something I read fairly recently and it sort of did resonate with me. Um, and it was regarding um, uh, an episode of Anthony Bourdain, uh, a wonderful chef who sadly died some years ago. Um, but he, there was an episode in, in Tokyo with some other chefs and they're all sitting around drinking sake and eating and having a wonderful time. And they were just talking about, um, well, let's come here tomorrow night and, and do the same thing. And uh, they all agreed that with the same group of people coming back the next night, the same food, the same amount of alcohol, the same everything, but it would be a very different, ex <clears throat> pardon me, different experience. And uh, it's something about that and it's kind of a maybe a zen thing but it was really about just living in the moment you know you can't change what's happened in the past you don't know what's happening in the future but really this conversation and being present in the moment is um i think something worth considering really that, that that's the series no reservations i think david yeah that's right uh, and how do you refresh and relax i I did hear you that you're a very a, absolute gun tennis player, but how do you relax and refresh, refresh apart from wandering around the outback with uh, not much? Yeah. What do I do? I um, uh, I like lots of different things, really. I like food and wine. I like just sitting in Ackland Street, just watching people. Um, I like being in the bush. Um, I don't know. I don't know. These okay. these things they they feed me in a strange way. Yeah. Oh well, well, perfect. Now, David, we've reached podcast extra or culture corner. I hope you don't uh, culture with a K. I think it is. But something you've read, <laughs> something you've read, seen, watched, listened to, experienced lately that might be of interest to our listeners. Oh, okay. Um, um, we, we can come back to you. I can ask Jess that, and we can come back to you. How's that? Yeah, oh, well, I, I was just going to say, look, probably one of the things that sits with me is, is it's in relation to art, I guess, but it's, um, it's a quote by Oscar Wilde um, about two ways of disliking art, really. And one is to dislike it outright, and the other is to like it rationally. <laughs> that seems to be something that underpins my practice, really. 
I'm not so interested in the rational explanation of, of painting. Yeah, there it is. Mm. Okay. It's not very, it's not that profound, is it really? Well, well, well I, maybe got, you... I got nothing for you here, Peter. I'm sorry. Uh, maybe you've encouraged our listeners to, um, to look at some of these artists that you mentioned and also dear old Oscar Wilde, um, uh, so, Jess, your podcast extra? I've just got back from a week holiday um, up in Queensland, which was just delightful. Um, had a wonderful time. And my recommendation coming out of that is just to, and look, this has been a, a constant theme in some of my recommendations in the last six months or so, but about disconnecting and um, similar to what um, what David was saying, you know, and maybe quite not quite as extreme as um, his examples, but disconnecting from email, disconnecting from the phone, leaving the phone at home and actually just having a proper holiday and engaging uh, with my family. It was really, really lovely. And I came back very relaxed and definitely very refreshed as well. What about you, Pete? You've always got something interesting. Well, well, two, two, well I don't know. Thanks, <laughs> Jess. But um, uh, David, I did a, a beginner's photography course the other night. Um, oh, hello. Uh, I don't know uh, how he finds the time to fit all these things in. Well, well, I'm watching a lot less TV and I'm having more baths and enjoying <laughs> walking around in my dressing gown, Jess, but, because it is winter here. Listeners, There's but, an image. But, yeah. But, but I can't unsee that. <laughs> Well, it's a it's a good madras pattern uh, dressing gown, but but uh, the the course I did, and I think our listeners, I've got a sort of a message for our listeners, and and I, I I've got I've had an SLR camera for years, and I use it a lot for work, you know, site inspection photos, Jess, and things, you know, for submissions. But I've never really got out of first gear with the camera, so I just put it on auto. That's and so I went to a beginner's hour and a half course. And and I now now know what some of the knobs on the camera do, and how to just get it into second gear. And so my message is: we've all got lots of gear around us. It's it's great to spend time to actually learn how to use things. So I hope that's not a lecture, David. It's sounding very much like a lecture, Peter. <laughs> it's, it's it's like self improvement lessons in self improvement. Uh, look, I like in it. I love it. Like, I, it's it's quite exciting, isn't it, when you've had something for a long time, and then you start to see it or use it in a different way. It takes you down a whole other direction, and I I really like that. I think it's a good good thing. You you you're not doing the camera course in your dressing gown, no. Am I? Can I just clarify that? Well, uh, well, you might see me around the the, the night, the streets at night. With my dressing gown and camera. Okay, right. So, I think, but, yeah, might but, be time, uh, to, but, time but, to wind uh, up there, I think, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I could talk about self-improvement forever, but uh, David, thank you for a very wild uh, exploration of art and cities and planning and all sorts of things. I hope our listeners, uh, a bit of a departure from what we normally do, Jess, would you say? Definitely, but they're very <laughs> interesting as well. I, I yeah. actually I also want to ask David um David do you know what zone your house is in uh not petrol station so um what would that be I think I don't know what, um, <laughs> what zone my house is in so, no I just live in it I don't know <laughs> it's uh no I'm sorry I'm not uh 
I'm probably the very I'm a I'm a planner's nightmare. I'm I'm a very unorganized person in many respects. <laughs> I I rarely plan I rarely plan things as such. So I'm yeah, I'm a bit hopeless like that. But we, anyway, we need that may more. be why I'm drawn we, to painting. We need more hopeless people, I think, David. This is uh <laughs> and uh thank you, Jess. Thank you, David, for being part of our little podcast. Uh, project and uh, listeners thanks for taking the time out to listen so thanks again David and thanks Jess no worries thank you guys thank you thanks for listening if you would like to hear more of our podcast hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts please also visit our Instagram page LinkedIn or website for behind the scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes if you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Jack Favage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast. 